Good morning, everyone. It's been an eventful, oh, I don't know, three months. I think I've traveled about 30,000 miles or so. <laughs> um, the Lord is greatly blessed. Like next week, I'm looking forward to being able to share a few of the experiences that we had and also the, the team that came to the Philippines uh, with me uh, will be able to share a little bit as well. And so uh, that'll be fun. You know, as uh, we mentioned earlier, this month we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And to do that, we've been looking at the five um, solas, the five pillars of the Reformation. Those solas, by the way, weren't uh, derived during the Reformation. Actually, it was the early 20th century when uh, those were put together in sort of a way to summarize some of the key um, aspects, the key pillars, the key truths that came out of the Reformation, all in regards to our salvation Sola Scriptura was uh, discussed. Pastor Kempis uh, talked about that the first Sunday of the month. And then uh, we looked at Solus, Solus Christus, through Christ alone. And today we want to look at a third sola, Sola Gratia, by grace alone. That is where I want to turn our attention. And of any passage in Scripture that really captures that sola, of any passage that really communicates by grace alone, it is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? In fact, we know that passage, right? How does it go? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, right? It's a familiar text. And it's interesting, in that passage we see both sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola fide, by faith alone, which we'll be talking about next weekend. And it is this text of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon preached most often from. In fact, of, of the thousands of sermons of the over 40 years of ministry, it is this passage which he often gravitated towards in his preaching. In fact, one could say it is perhaps the, his favorite text in Scripture. It was interesting, uh, toward the end of his life, Spurgeon again found himself moving towards this passage, preaching it during one of his messages. And in the introduction to that sermon, as I read his sermon, he reflected on the past. He reflected on the first time that he had preached that message as a very young man. He had been invited to a small church in the country, and as he was traveling there, he found difficulty with the transportation. I guess uh, uh, he, you know, being stuck in traffic is not just a 21st century thing. So he ended up getting there late. And he was surprised as he approached the doors of the church to hear that the service had already started. He was surprised to hear, in fact, the sermon had already started without him. And then when he walked through the doors of the church, he was even more surprised to see it was his grandfather who was preaching. This church was a church where his grandfather attended. And as he went into the church... Uh, he, uh, his grandfather saw him enter the doors and he says, here comes my grandson. Now you can see why I picked this illustration here. <laughs> here comes my grandson. He may be able to preach the gospel better than I, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Isn't that right, Charles? And so then he invited uh, Charles up to the pulpit. And what's funny is his grandpa then went and sat down, but he sat down behind him. And as Spurgeon was preaching, his grandpa kept making comments during the sermon. He would say things like, good, good, that's good. Or, or tell him again, tell him about it again, Charles. 
In fact, I think at one point Spurgeon mentions his grandpa actually got up and gave his own illustration in the middle of the sermon. So thankfully, I'm, I'm okay this morning. But you know, it's uh, interesting. After he shared a fond memory of the first time that he had preached that passage, he then turned to Ephesians 2.8 and he said with these words, While announcing this text, I seem to hear that dear voice which has been so long lost to the earth, saying to me now, tell them that again. And even though this passage is a familiar one to us, in fact, I'm sure many of us, it may have been among the first verses we memorize. We often share it with others when talking about the gospel and preaching the gospel to others. We are very familiar with what the text declares. In fact, some of the passage found its way into the very songs that we sang this morning. But as we turn to this passage. I could think of no more appropriate words than the one spoken long ago by a beloved grandfather to his grandson. Tell them that again. And so let's do that. Let's look again at this marvelous passage of scripture. And if you could please stand with me uh, as we read, as I read the text, we'll begin in verse one of chapter two of Ephesians. It gives us the context. Paul says here in Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. O Lord, open up Your Word to us now. May Your Spirit give us not only understanding, but move in our hearts to appreciate and and relish, to embrace these amazing truths about Your grace. We pray too for our brother Kempis and just ask that you would bring him healing and rest. Lord, that you would strengthen him. And we pray all these in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Now the first six verses here in this passage, they, they describe the state of all humanity, of every single person who has ever lived except Jesus Christ. And that is that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were externally, we followed the world system, we were under Satan's control, under his domain, and internally we were enslaved to our own flesh. We obeyed its rebellious desires, rebellious against the holy and good and righteous and perfect God who made us. But even despite that, this passage tells us in verses 
4 to 6, that for those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ alone, it tells us that God gives spiritual life, that He gives a relationship with Him, that He provides forgiveness, that He frees us from Satan and the flesh, that He gives us a new home with Christ in heaven, that He pours out His vast blessings upon us, as we read earlier this morning, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And this should make us all, all of us, ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Why would God, a holy and just God who hates sin, who is offended by sin, why would he do that? One who cannot even bear to look upon sin. Why would he not just cast us all into hell? I would be just and right. Why would he not do that? Get rid of us all, the whole lot of us. And more than that, why would he turn around and send his own son as the sacrifice, as the payment for that sin so that he could forgive us, so that he could adopt us, so that he could redeem us, so that he could bless us, so that he could rescue us from hell? Why would God do that? What does verse 4 say, brothers and sisters? But God being what? Rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God could not look upon humanity and do nothing. His grace, his mercy, his compassion compelled him to act. He would not watch us perish in hell, as the scriptures say. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so he did send his son to die in the place of anyone who would put their trust in Christ alone, who would desire to turn from their sin and follow Jesus alone. God saved us for that reason. But not only that, he also saved us, as Paul notes here, for another reason. There's another motivation, another foundation. For notice, Paul says here in verses 7 through 10, let me read them again. He made us alive, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Notice here, Paul repeats something, doesn't he? Several times, in fact. Verse 5, he says, For by grace you've been saved. In verse 7, he says that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. And then again, to make sure we get the point, in verse 8, For by grace you've been saved. Sola gratia. God saved us by grace alone. His grace alone. Unmerited favor. And so this morning, we're going to reflect on that grace from verses 7 through 10 here in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to see here three aspects of solia gratia, three phases, if you will, of God's grace, past, present, and future. So let's consider the first aspect. And I'm going to break the text up a a little bit here because the first aspect I want us to look at is God's past grace in verses 8 and 9. You know, every believer has has a story, right? We have a testimony. Everyone who has put their trust in Christ has a uh, witnesses of, testifies of that work that God did. And each of us, uh, like a fingerprint, have a unique testimony. But there's one thing, there's one thing that threads and weaves through all of our testimonies. It's one thing we all have in common. And that is that that salvation only came by God's grace. Amen? That's the only way. We have been saved by God's grace 
alone. The only reason any of us know Christ, the only reason any of us are forgiven, the only reason any of us are saved is how, beloved? (laughs) By God's grace alone. God's grace alone. In fact, Paul emphasizes this point here in verse 8 where he says that the word for grace, charis, he puts the word in front of the sentence, at the beginning of the sentence in Greek for emphasis. So that it would read, by grace you've been saved. And it's important that we remind ourselves, saved from what? What does that word saved mean? What have we been rescued from? It's that idea of being rescued from danger or from peril. Well, verses 1 to 3 clearly describe the peril that we were in without Christ. It says there that we were locked up in a prison called the world. And guess who is the warden? Satan himself is the warden of that prison. We were buried deep within that prison in a jail cell. And that's our flesh. We were enslaved to it. We were locked in. No way out. No way of escape. No key. No hope. All of us were there. We stood condemned on death row. Awaiting eternal execution in hell. Sometimes we fail to remind ourselves of that. All of us, apart from Christ at death, we were doomed to eternal suffering, and rightly so. But by God's grace, we've been saved from all that. (laughs) Saved from spiritual deadness. Saved from enslavement to our flesh. Saved from the power and control and dominion of Satan. Saved from the influences of the world Saved from, above all else, God's just and terrible wrath. What does Romans 5, 9 say? It says that having been now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Again, without God's grace, we're all doomed to eternal torment in hell. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 describes it as the penalty of uh, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And yet, if you're in Christ, you've been saved from that. And you know, the gospel, solia gratia, grace alone, it's not just what we've been saved from, but it's what we've also been saved for. God didn't rescue us from the ocean of sin and put us in some old fishing boat. (laughs) But He plucked us out from that ocean of condemnation and put us in a magnificent yacht glorious notice verses five and six say that we've been given spiritual life with god a new citizenship in heaven a freedom from the power of the evil one and how did all this come about solia gratia god's grace alone and paul here is emphatic he wants to make sure we don't miss the point Not only does he put the word by grace at the beginning of the sentence, but notice right after saying by grace you have been saved through faith, he says what in verse 8? Look there. Not of yourselves, right? And the that there refers to the source of your salvation is not you, but it's through faith by grace. You didn't rescue yourself. You didn't figure out how to save yourself. And then Paul says he has one more statement. It is the gift of God. And in the Greek, Paul switches the word order here. He puts God right after you. So the last half of verse 8 would literally read like this. And that not from you, of God the gift. 
There's an emphasis. He puts those words directly together just to make the point. Look, look, it's not us. It's him. It's not us. It's him. Then on top of that, Paul adds, not as a result of works. Just in case we haven't gotten the point to this point, he wants to make sure we see it's not as a result of anything we've done, any labor, any effort, any work on our part. And this is so difficult for humans to accept, isn't it? It is so difficult. It's like it's in our nature that we feel like there's something we have to do. There's something we must do. There's something I must be able to do to make things right with God. Isn't that the truth? Right? How many times have you talked to somebody and asked them, how do you know if you're going to heaven or not? What did they say? What did we say? (laughs) I've done enough good things, right? Tell me I'm wrong on that. Isn't that true? That's just in our, it's ingrained in our DNA. We just have this idea there's something that that we must do to earn a salvation from the Lord. But he says here that it's a gift of God. We just don't understand the concept of a gift, a true gift. There's nothing we can do to be made right before God. Paul said this in Galatians 2.16 in response to the Judaizers there. He said, A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul, three times here, repeats the fact we are not justified by works. We are not justified by our labors. We are not justified at all by any effort on our part. These people in Paul's day, especially in Galatia, they thought, you know, if, if I just keep the law, I can earn my way in. If I'm just good enough. But it wasn't just the Jews in Paul's day, was it? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is written to Gentiles. They too had this mindset. They too came from a religious system of works, that things they must do to appease the gods or to gain favor from the gods. And it's the same today. Right? Apart from any... Apart from Christianity, true Christianity, every other religion, every other religious system has something that we have to do that man or woman has to do in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn nirvana or salvation or heaven or however, however it's described. It's the same today. You know, I love Spurgeon. He said, it's reported that he said, man-made religion says do, 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 but Christ says done, done, done. And even people who aren't religious, even people who would claim there is no God have this mindset as well. If they just do enough good in the world, everything will be fine. Others think that, well, God's grace, yes, it is God's grace, but it just supplies what I lack. But see, it's not that grace supplies those who don't have enough. It it supplies those who have nothing. (laughs) We have nothing. We have no capacity to come to God on our own without Christ. We were all dead in sin, Paul says. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps, or better, a better word is rescues, those who are helpless. It's the one who cries out, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. 
That's the desperate cry of somebody who recognizes that solia gratia, by grace alone. If Christ, if you don't wash me, I die. If you don't save me, I perish. The only way to be saved is by God's grace alone. Have I made that point clear yet? <laughs> this is exactly the tone and emphasis in Paul in these verses from Paul. He keeps going over and over. It's not of yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not by works. Now, perhaps someone here has the same mentality. Perhaps you are relying on your good works or the good deeds you've done to get you in. Perhaps you may think that some religious service or kind acts or prayers or reading your Bible, reading the Bible, will be enough to cancel out your sin against God. But, but listen, friend, it's only by His grace that you can be saved. It is only through His grace. There's no work you can do. And that's actually offensive to God to even think that way. That we could erase or cover our rebellion against Him by some good that we've done, that, that would be like going out right, and murdering a bunch of people and then say, turning around and giving all our money to the poor and thinking, well, that should make up for what I did. What's any judge going to say to that one? Or at least what would any judge used to say to that one? I don't know today anymore, but right, that's completely wrong, completely unjust. Even more so with the Lord. God will accept no good work. Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration renewing by the Spirit. And that's why Paul here says at the end of verse 9 in Ephesians 2, no one can boast. Nobody's going to be in heaven saying, wow, it's a good thing I did what I did to get here. But there'll be a lot of people in hell making that statement. I thought I did enough good to get there, but why am I here? Don't try to earn your way to heaven. The debt is too large. You might as well go and make a commitment to pay off the national debt. It would be, that would be much easier to pay the national debt off by yourself than to get your way into heaven. You can never pay it. Only the blood of Christ can. Again, Spurgeon said... Man-made religion says, do, do, do. But Christ says, done, done, done. It's by faith alone, through God's grace alone. He brings that salvation. And the means of that salvation by His grace is faith. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, as He's preaching the gospel of God, repent and believe in the gospel. John 3.16, we know that passage. It says there that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And true faith acknowledges that we are sinners in need of God's grace. True faith acknowledges that we are walking away from Him and need to turn from that sin by His grace and follow Him. True faith will be demonstrated by fruit. So let's step back a minute. Let's ask a question here. If Paul here, if he's... Writing to Christians here in Ephesians, why all this emphasis then on God's grace, it being of God's grace and not ourselves? Haven't they already come to faith? Why is Paul addressing this past grace, that, that God saved them by His grace? Well, first, 
Right? It brings us, it brings God glory, doesn't it? That's the whole point of everything. The first chapter was dedicated to the praise of his glory. And then in Ephesians 2 7, we read that God displayed, he saved us in order to display the overwhelming riches of his grace. And then reflecting on God's grace and our salvation, that gives us and his angels reason to pause and to ponder and to wonder. And secondly, this doctrine of God's grace brings great comfort. Because you know what? If you realize this, if we realize this, that our salvation doesn't depend on anything that we did, then we don't have to fear that there's something we could do to lose it. If it's God's grace that saves, it's God's grace that sustains. Because if it was up to us, (laughs) right? If it was up to us, Our salvation will be gone in a moment's notice. No work of mine earned my salvation. And praise God, no work will unsave me. Louis Ferry Schaefer said this, Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human failure and sin. In fact, grace cannot be exercised where there is the slightest degree of human merit to be recognized. And again, not only in salvation, but also in the preservation of that salvation. Romans 6.1 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And if you're his child, if you're his Christian, that means that God loves and accepts you on your best days and on your worst ones. Only because of His Son. Yeah, we need to repent on those bad days. We need to confess our sin and make a commitment once again to to pursue and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But know that God doesn't hold those sins over you as a threat. All right, one more time, and that's it. One more, that's it. Oh, what would life be like if that was hanging over us? But praise God, it is not. Isn't that a comfort? Is that encouragement? And Paul wants us to see that here. By his grace, by his grace, by his grace you've been saved. Ephesians 2, 7 through 10 not only presents that past grace of God, but also we see here his present grace. That, that's the second aspect of solia gratia, God's present grace. We see it in two ways here. Look at verse 8. The first is in the verb, you have been saved. Now that's, that's one word in Greek, and it's in what's called the perfect tense, which is a tense that means there's a past action that has continuing results in the present. In fact, in some cases, emphasizing those present results from the past act. See, the focus here isn't on the past that has taken place. It is on the present state of affairs resulting from that past action. Paul further intensifies the present results by adding in the Greek text, you can't necessarily see it in the English, the word uh, verb to be. So he, he sort of double whammies it here by emphasizing that it is in the present because of what God has done in the past, we now are saved by his grace. God's past act has huge implications for our present condition. And he didn't just give you enough grace to get you saved. There's a lifetime supply. Right? You didn't just win one box of chocolates. It's a lifetime of chocolate. But so many of us live as if we got one box. And like, I'm running out. I'm running out. I've only got one piece left. 
Many Christians live like that. They have the mentality, yeah, okay, I understand. I, I couldn't earn my salvation, but, but I need to keep all those commands for God to stay happy with me. Or we have this idea, I need to, to do all the rules and follow all the instructions in order to be blessed. Or I need to obey so I don't get in trouble. Or I need to follow God's law to show God he didn't make a mistake in saving me. <laughs> Some of us think that way too. God, you made a good decision on this one. And I'll show you that by my behavior. Some of us think that we need to do something to contribute to our present standing before God. We're so performance-based. We come back to that thing again. It's just ingrained in us. That something we can't get rid of even after salvation. I have to be good. I, I have to be good. I have to be good. God adopted me into his house and now I need to earn my keep. You don't. Jesus already did. Right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not saying that the Good Samaritan was Jesus there, but that's an illustration of what he did in some ways, right? He paid the debt. And he said, anything else, put it on my bill. That's what he did for us. And he has a big wallet. His righteousness not only counts towards your salvation, brothers and sisters, but also towards your sanctification. And again, that's such a comfort. Notice verse 10, Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared, uh, uh, sorry, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. That word workmanship has the idea of a, of a work of a craftsman, a masterpiece. The word created there, it's the same one we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. We are handcrafted by God. Someone formerly dead in sin is now someone that God wants to use and has planned to use to carry out his good works. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing grace. Titus 2.14, which we'll get here pretty soon says, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And again, we know this, but we just need to be reminded. It's not doing good works that saves us, but God saves us to do good works. I like how R.C. Sproul put it. He said, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In God's providence, there's a life of good works that he desires his children to live out. And if you've been reborn by God, then you've been set on a path of good works that he has prepared for you to do by his grace. Titus 2.11 says, For by grace, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is discussing God's past grace in Christ, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That first word in verse 12, instructing. God's grace not only brings salvation, but it is also continuing to instruct us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously. That's, that's another expression or, or way to say how God's grace is working itself out today, now, presently. It is instructing us. His grace continues after we are saved. It's like a, a, a tutor to teach, to help us step by step to know how it is we can 
honor Christ, how it is we can follow Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, you and I need God's grace not only to be saved, but we need it to live out the Christian life, right? Amen? Wasn't it Paul that said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace, if God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. Yet again, we, we get caught up in this, my holiness is all up to me. I just need to grit my teeth, work it out, and obey, obey, obey. God commanded it, so I just need to figure out a way to do it. Now, please don't misunderstand me here, all right? Please don't misunderstand me. The issue isn't whether we need to obey God's commands. Of course we do. <laughs> he wouldn't give them otherwise. But the issue is how. The issue is our mindset. The issue is our motivation. The issue is our understanding. What's going to empower us to do that? Do you rely on yourself? Do you really see it as it's all up to you? Do you see the Christian life as, you know what, I'm just going to gut this thing out until I die? Listen again, we need God's grace as much to live out the Christian life as to become a Christian in the first place. So don't get stuck on the performance treadmill that your blessing, your status before God, His favor upon you, that that all is based on what you do. In fact, turn with me to Matthew 19 for a minute here. Matthew 19. It's an interesting parable here that Jesus gives. And it really describes in some ways our problem with this. Jesus had just challenged the rich young ruler to give up everything. That thing that he loved, his money, his possessions. He said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. But the young man walked away. Peter picked up on Jesus' challenge to him. And look at Matthew 19, 27. He asks him a question. Peter says to, said to him, to Christ, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? He just saw Jesus, what he said to the young man who walked away. And Peter said, Look, well, we, we stayed. <laughs> we didn't walk away. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now here Peter says, sort of a works-based mentality, I think, in his question. He says, look, we've followed you. What's in it for us? Jesus is so gracious here, (laughs) as he often is. He's saying there would indeed, Peter, yes, there is a reward. There is a reward. But then he addresses the problem with Peter's question. In that last statement, he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And in order to explain that principle, he gives a parable. Look at Matthew 20, verse 1. Jesus begins, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out in the fig, into the vineyard. And so here's the setting, all right? It's 6 a.m. in the morning. Vineyard owner, he's out at Home Depot. He's looking for some guys to help him do the, the labor, the extra labor in his vineyard. It's probably close to harvest time. He needed more help. And so he goes and he finds some laborers. 
Again, these were day laborers. They had no steady job. They had no means to support their family except for what was provided for them on a daily basis if they could get work. So they were living hand to mouth. And so here the vineyard owner, he goes out and he offers them a denarius. That was a a, a day's wages in that time. It was a, what a Roman soldier was paid for his labors for a day. So these guys, they begin to work. Look at verse 3. And he, it's the vineyard owner, went out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., and he saw others standing idly in the marketplace. And he to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And then again, he went out about the sixth hour, that is noon. And then the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. And he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. So you get the picture, right? vineyard owner is going out all throughout the day and he's getting more guys more guys more guys 9 a.m noon 3 p.m and even the 11th hour 5 p.m he's out getting these laborers and then the whistle blows at six o'clock they hear the horn the land that owner has all the the laborers gathered together so his foreman can pay them off knowing that they needed the money to provide for their families that day and then and it's right here as Jesus, he often did this with parables. You kind of be going along in a parable expecting a particular outcome, but then he flips it. Right? Like the good Samaritan, you know, he's talking about this guy who was beat up and, and the guy that actually helps him out is their hated enemy. Totally flipped it on him. Well, he does that here. Notice, look at verse 9. And he flips it on its head when he talks about how these laborers were paid. When those hired about the 11th hour came, again, they just worked one hour, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. You know, it's interesting. I, I kind of picture myself of one, as one of these guys, right? Especially one of the guys that showed up at five o'clock. You know, what, what he must have been thinking. And then he gets a denarius, a full day's wage, and he goes home and he, said, he says, Honey, you won't believe what happened to me today. I'm standing around all day, got no work, and then this guy comes up at 5 o'clock. And he offers to, to give me work. And, and then when I'm done, after just an hour, he gives me a whole day's wage. Look at it. Kind of think of uh, Bob Cratchit, right? You know, and the excitement there. Let's go out and get the turkey. Imagine, though, the guys who had worked all day, what they were thinking. In fact, we're told. Yeah, I agreed to work for a denarius, but if that's what he's paying those guys who just showed up, I must be getting more for all my efforts. And then, right, they're given the, the denarius. Whoa, hey, wait, whoa, hold on a second here. 
He just gave one of those to that guy, right? Yeah. Well, look, I was here since six in the morning. It's understandable. I think we'd all be thinking the same thing, right? You know you would. (laughs) Instead, what should they have been thinking? What a gracious man. He gave those guys that amount because he knew they needed it for their families. And even though they worked just an hour, he gave them what they needed to provide for their daily needs. What an amazing, kind, gracious landowner. But that's not what was on their mind, was it? Wait a minute. What about me? I should be given more for my efforts. And this is a picture I think of a works-based sanctification. It's the same idea. I worked harder. I obeyed more. I obeyed longer. I should get more. I deserve it. God got me in, but I took it from there, and I'm earning my keep. But this guy, right, we think about the thief on the cross. How long was he a believer? Not that long. Or those who had died and their last breaths on their deathbed were given in faith to Christ. And yet, some of us maybe have been walking and struggling in our faith for years, for decades. And yet, we're going to be at the same place. Receiving the same reward. The key themes of this parable is about the grace of the landowner. And the landowner represents God. Think about it. Did any of those guys deserve to be hired? Any of them? None of them did. They were only there because the landowner asked them to come. It was his gracious choice. Did any of them deserve to receive a full denarius? No. It was up to what the landowner offered. They were at the mercy of what he was willing to pay. And then why did he... Keep going back to get more workers. Was it that the landowner would show up at the vineyard? Oh, I need some more. I got to go. Oh, I need some more. Was he just a poor planner? Or was it that he was a very gracious man? And he wanted to help these guys provide for their families. You see that the vineyard owner went out there for the sake of the workers. So that they would have something to provide for their family. What's the connection here? To us, our gracious God hired us and none of us deserve to be chosen. None of us deserve God's blessing. Our standing before God is not something that we have earned. And our obedience is not to be seen as something that God must compensate us for. So don't be like the guys that were hired early. And we're focused only on their own efforts instead of the grace of the one who hired them. Look, brothers and sisters, your growth is no more dependent on you than your salvation was. Again, that doesn't mean that we're not called to obey and respond to God's commands, but we're to recognize in whose power and strength and by whose grace we live those things out. Ephesians 2, Paul is expanding on our understanding of the amazing grace of God so that we realize it's all about Him. It's not up to me. Apart from Christ, we can't be saved. And apart from Christ, we can't be sanctified. 
Again, the way to holiness is not just through trying harder. The way to holiness is to grasp that God is at work in you. Again, before you accuse me of antinomianism, anti-law uh, keeping, that I'm not saying it to you, you know, hey, you know what, don't worry about the commands. You know, everything will be fine. We'll all end up, you're saved, don't, don't worry about it. Just do what you want. Let me remind you, the primary theme of the book of Ephesians is holiness, right? That we've been chosen in Him to be holy and blameless. You know, someone once confronted Martin Luther about this whole doctrine of justification, that it's by God's grace alone. And, and they confronted him saying, if this is true, a person can simply live as he pleased. And then Luther, he always had the great responses. He said this, indeed, meaning it's true. Now, what pleases you? In a similar vein, Augustine said, love God and do as you please. You see what they're getting at? They knew that a true understanding of God's grace in the past, a right understanding of God's grace in the present, that that, that doesn't lead to a more sinful life. Actually, it's the opposite. It leads to a more holy one. When you recognize God's prepared good works, works for me to do beforehand that I should walk in them and look at what he did in order to save me, in order to sanctify me, in order to bring about forgiveness and redemption and adoption and all these things. Of course, of course, I want to pursue following Christ. Now, if you thought God's past grace and salvation was amazing, if you thought his present grace currently and sanctification was something marvelous there's one more aspect here and to me this is the one that um, is stunning it's the third aspect of soli gratia here we've looked at god's grace in the past god's grace in the present paul also addresses god's grace in the future look again at verse seven in fact it's the third thing he said in response to uh, the reason for god making us alive. He said, so that, verse 7, in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that phrase there, in the ages to come, it refers to the time from the present to the future, from this point into eternity. And notice the first two words there, so that. There's a purpose statement. It's linked to what he just said in verses 5 and 6, that God made us alive, that he raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Why? So that, and then look at what he says here. God made us alive and gave us a new home, so that, why? Why did he bring about our salvation? Why did he send the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for what we could not pay for? Why did he bring about our salvation. What is it God wanted to do? It's a demonstration of His mercy and love, but notice here He says, so that He might display or demonstrate or show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us who believe in Christ Jesus. Do you see what He's saying here? God saved you so that He could show you His grace forever so that he would continue 
to pour out His grace and kindness lavished upon us, as it said earlier in Ephesians 1, forever. Today, tomorrow, next month, next year, for eternity. He wanted to show you His kindness. His grace didn't stop at salvation. It's not going to stop at sanctification. And it won't stop at glorification either. When you enter into heaven, if you're His child, you will experience His grace for eternity. Forever, those surpassing riches of His mercy and His love and His kindness will be poured out. Ephesians 1.6 says He's chosen us for adoption to the praise of His glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And then we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. This is stunning. It's unbelievable. Again, like I said earlier, words can't. there, there aren't words that that we can wrap around this, that rightly express the utter marvel and wonder at this. God was at work in you in the past. He's at work in you now, and He will not stop being at work in you for eternity. It isn't like you show up and then, oh, good, you're here, you made it, good to see you, and then moves on. So, not going to stop working you know and that to me this is so much more motivating to pursue holiness isn't it doesn't it just make you want to i'll give everything up to follow you i'll give everything up because you gave it all and you're going to continue to do that god is already happy with you because of his son so live for him reminds me of a poem that W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote to his daughter, for his daughter. It said this, I will not work my soul to save, for that my Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. Lord, forgive my feeble attempts to, to try to communicate the depths what your word speaks here. I I pray that by your spirit you would increase our our awe of you, our 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 wonder. Lord, we're we're so prone. We hear these things so often and I think Lord can easily become deadened to the truths. We've sung amazing grace countless times, Lord, especially those of us who've been believers for a long time and yet Father, I think at times I know for myself that I don't stop and reflect on just how amazing your grace is. Of course, thank you is not enough, but it's all we can express to you for your past grace, your present grace, and the grace that you will pour out in the future and all eternity. Lord, please uh, use these truths to motivate us to to want to live for You, to not entertain sin, Lord, to not do those things by which Your grace has made a provision. Lord, that, that we would be sold out 
for the Lord Jesus Christ and make Him known to others and live for Him. I pray if, oh Lord, there are any here that have not recognized, truly understood it is by Your grace alone that, Lord, You would open their eyes to see and understand and believe. We thank You again. In Christ's name, Amen.